Hello and welcome to this Royal Children's Hospital podcast series, Life, Love and Loss, Caring for a Child Who is Dying, produced by the Victorian Paediatric Palliative Care Program and nationally funded by Quality of Care Collaborative Australia. My name is Lena Keneva and I'm a journalist and the facilitator of this five-part series. Despite advances in healthcare, children and young people still die from a range of life-limiting conditions. This series will focus on the experience of parents whose children have died or are likely to have a short life. The parents we're about to hear from have been supported by palliative care teams to face multiple challenges in caring for their own children. They bravely share their experiences to inform and prepare other families who may need to face similar challenges. In this episode, we provide an introduction to palliative care and what it involves. So let's talk about the elephant in the room. We're joined by three parents today to hear their stories. Simon is a father who experienced a cancer diagnosis for both his son Marmaduke and his wife Milsom. His son died at the age of four, just five weeks after Simon's wife. Abigail and husband Luke's son, Matthew, was born with a rare genetic condition which affected his brainstem development, and he died at the age of five. Renee and husband Steve's son, four-year-old Damien, has a rare and life-limiting form of epilepsy and is currently part of a paediatric palliative care plan. Welcome to you all. Simon, can we start with you and tell us uh, the journey you've been on with your son and your wife's diagnosis? Okay, well, my son Marmaduke was diagnosed with neuroblastoma, which is a solid tumour, when he was about toddler, 15 months. And we were just thrown into the whole twilight zone of just getting dropped into an oncology journey. My wife was pregnant with our youngest at the time, so that kind of meant I became the full-time carer because we were on chemo. And it was a horrendous year, but it was full on. But at the end of it, he was actually diagnosed um, no existing disease, so he was clear after a year. At least that means the machinery can't find anything. We took a deep breath, waited three months, went on a big family holiday, and then Milsom found a lump in her breast. <sighs> took a deep breath, came back to Melbourne, weaned Rafferty, who I think by that stage was about five, six months, did a mastectomy and then jumped onto her oncology train and uh, meanwhile Marmaduke was getting his strength back we even got him back into school and then just I think it was about four or five days before Milsom had a final appointment with radiotherapy um, Marmaduke actually relapsed so his cancer came back it had jumped originally it was in his um, sort of adrenal gland but it jumped to his leg and we found it through him fracturing it went for a pony ride and he just couldn't walk afterwards and so suddenly we were, um, I think it was really it was oh, really challenging for his mum because she, she was just getting to the end of her treatment and then suddenly we're back in. So I'm back in hospital as, as full-time carer. We didn't really talk about palliative care right then because we were looking for a cure. The difficulty is once you relapse, the options are incredibly limited. We didn't realise how limited, but that's just the way it works. And we were probably about three months in. Uh, we were trying a, another cocktail and suddenly Milsom relapsed 
and she'd only finished treatment three months before. But by this time, hers had jumped and it had jumped to her liver and so she was, bang, you, you just declared terminal. You don't know how long, but you know, you're looking at limited period. And then I think, oh, barely three, four weeks later, we kind of realised the time was up for Marmaduke as well because the, the treatment was having an impact. It just wasn't wasn't strong enough to give him a cure. So it wasn't going to... We couldn't see the value of putting him through the pain of the chemo and the infections and the trauma if it actually wasn't going to turn the tide back. So then we made the decision we need to get him home, um, not least because Milson was at home as well. And... We brought him home and he was, um, look, because of the, the leg fracture, he had a sort of a little bit of a hip spiker. So he was a little bit limited, but he wouldn't really. He was still trying to throw himself off couches and he was just a fun, we just had a ball. Just got him home with his 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 two uh, brothers and his big sister and we just made the most of it. We took him off bush camping, um, just got all the gear um, got trained in terms of looking after all his um, dressings and we just went bush for about three three weeks, took him in the estuary and the, it just had an absolute ball. And we carried on with that for a few more months. I think, I guess, probably maybe seven months before the end, there was a conversation about, well, you know, you need to meet the palliative care team. And it was very uncomfortable for Milson because it was, there is an urban myth, you know, ooh, Palliative care comes from behind the dark curtain and suddenly it means a death sentence. And it is an absolute urban myth because palliative care is about comfort in so many, on so many levels, physical, psychological, emotional, that it was too... Ch- I, I understand it was too challenging for Milson to have that conversation. So I basically got briefed up on what it meant. Um, if I look back, did I really understand it? No. And yet I didn't always know the questions I needed to ask. But at least I was briefed. So when we did, you know, when his condition declined a bit more and we had to maybe push some buttons and get equipment home, I knew what to do. A huge story to tell there, Simon, and we'll come back to that. Can I move to Abigail and ask you to share your story about your son, Matthew? Yeah. So Maddie was born 41 weeks. His labour went really well, but then he had to be resuscitated so that was one of five or six episodes where he he wasn't able to protect his own airway. By the time he was nine weeks old, he had a dietitian, a speech therapist, a physiotherapist, and oh, I had a lactation consultant. Then he got really sick one night, so I thought, I oh, will just take him to the hospital. It's ten minutes away, and they cut off his clothes and they ventilated him in the ED there at the district hospital. Um, But it just went on from there, like it kept happening. So the doctors thought he was fine, he should be fine, we'll take him off the machine, it'll be fine. Nah. So by the time he was 12 months old, he'd been in hospital every four to six weeks. My husband had to perform CPR on Matthew at home um, while we waited for an ambulance because he just went like fully grey and unresponsive. So at that point he had chronic lung disease. Then we had another episode where we called an ambulance and he just stopped breathing. And that's when we had a conversation with an ICU doctor and he said, when's the next appointment you have with his paediatrician? I think you guys need to have a conversation 
about what happens. He goes, when and not if I see Matthew again, I want a set of written instructions, clear instructions from you guys, what you want me to do. Um, so, yeah, Maddie managed to get admitted again in the three weeks between that ICU admission and the, you know, next paediatrician meeting. And at that point, we were referred to very special kids and palliative care, and we wrote up his first set of advanced care orders. Um, I didn't really know what palliative care was going to do, but we, I guess in a more traditional sense, we often had admissions where we weren't sure he was going to get discharged. So it was not as foreign, I suppose. Um, But yeah, it was very, it's, yeah. They were one of my favourite teams. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to hear. We'll come back to all those details. Renee, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your son, Damien. He's currently part of a paediatric palliative care plan. How did the journey start for you? Okay, so Damien was born in April 2017 after a non-eventful pregnancy, so everything was tracking fine. He's my firstborn, so of course everything's going to be perfect. Uh, He was born having extreme startles. So what they refer to as a moro response whenever a baby gets a fright is, of course, it's a protective mechanism. His moro response wouldn't stop. So he was quite literally a four kilo baby just having these huge shuddering jolts. So at first it was these things can happen sometimes. So they did the usual, let's check sugars, let's check all those sort of tests. And in the meantime, um, I'd had an emergency caesarean, so I'd actually started to hemorrhage. And so I got rushed back into surgery. Damien got picked up and rushed into special care. And my husband was sort of sitting there going, well, this isn't how the day started. So in special care, he was having these, continued with these huge sort of jolts. And um, they were sort of ruling everything out and saying, well, everything, he looks perfectly fine. We're not seeing any other issues that could be causing this. All of his bloods are okay. Let's sort of wait and see. Now, what was really confusing them? was as soon as you scooped him up into a great big, like I'm talking a hug, like hug is as hard as you can for a, a child safely, he would settle. And so as long as we reduced noise and sound, touch and things like that to just eliminated everything else except a big cuddle, he would stop. So his paediatrician, who's an absolute superwoman, um, she's going, it, it feels, it, things look a little bit like epilepsy, but he keeps settling. You can't settle a seizure. There's no settling a seizures with cuddles. So this is what was sort of keeping them guessing. At one point he'd, he'd jolt so hard that his diaphragm would actually freeze. And so he would stop breathing. His oxygen sats would drop. And so it was just action stations. So we were sort of balancing between really settled and really extreme. So, um, He'd spent the first 10 days in special care and they'd begun some medication just to help him to settle for those sort of in-between times. And we sort of left with a tentative diagnosis of what's referred to as hyperplexia, which is an extreme startle response. So a lot of adults have it. They live a long, happy life, but have this extreme response to any noise and things like that. So we kind of went, oh, my God, this is absolutely devastating. But what kind of a life is my child going to have? Because you sort of go into this. I thought I was going to have a normal baby and we've got all of these issues going on. So... We were really lucky to be linked with Andrew, this amazing neurology professor, and um, we saw him very early on. And so we discussed the hyperplexia diagnosis and we had Andrew's details. And at three and a half months, Damien started to have um, sort of a really, he'd wake up and it looked like, it often gets misdiagnosed as reflux. It's actually called an infantile spasm. So he'd have these little sort of spasms where his body would sort of jolt. And we went, that's rhythmic. That's, as he's waking up, this isn't quite normal. 
let's get on to Andrew and just run this past him. Because by that, by that point, it was kind of like any little thing we saw, let's just double check that this is all okay. And Andrew said, you need to get into the hospital ASAP. And um, by then we were sort of, you Google what you're looking at and then you start to see just this is big, right? Now, by then, three and a half months, Damien had missed his other milestones. So we knew that that hyperplexia diagnosis, there were some other things going on. So um, we get to the children's and, of course, they um, do an EEG and it's an absolute mess. And so he, um, they do a lumbar puncture, they do MRIs and everything's fine. They can't, they can't find a root cause of this. There was no brain injuries or anything else. So they sort of went down the, maybe it's a genetic diagnosis. So we'll go down, we'll get the gene tests started because at that time that takes a long time. So we'll do the epilepsy panel and see what comes back. But we also got the um, umbrella diagnosis. As far as epilepsies are concerned, it's really complicated because there's no sort of set epilepsy. That even the particular type sort of branch off into one another. So um, we got this West syndrome diagnosis. And if you Google West syndrome, um, the diagnosis is... <laughs> One of four, um, one child will be perfectly fine. They'll pick up and everything will be okay. One will have severe disabilities and the other two potentially won't live till they're five. So we already had that neurological diagnosis. So we'd ruled out we're not going to be the okay baby. And so then we sort of had the other two. And my husband and I are very... Um, we just want you just want to know you want to know what you're up against. Do you know what I mean? It's like don't don't tell me everything's going to be fine if it's not. You know, like we can we can build upon whatever's. You know, we'll be okay. We'll, we'll just take on whatever happens. We'll be all right. So um, we had the appointment with Andrew after we'd had that um, diagnosis on the ward. We're really lucky that Damien responded to a course of steroids, and so that stopped the infantile spasms. But of course, we'd moved into this diagnose, diagnostic sort of space. So our first question for Andrew when we saw him was, um, is this terminal? And Andrew was really beautiful about it. He explained that for kids like Damien with already have existing neurological conditions, that the time frame's wide, so it could anywhere between, say, maybe 6 and 16, depending on a whole bunch of other factors. So, of course, you're up against seizures, which are a risk of, on their own. And then, of course, with severe disabilities, there are airway issues, there are all sorts of other things that when the human body develops perfectly, we're amazing creatures. But the moment things start to go wrong, they, they go really wrong. So over a period of time, things sort of start to degenerate. So that was us going, OK, that's that's what's in our future. So... That hyperplexia diagnosis that I was so worried about him having, oh, he might jolt at the sound of a firework, suddenly went, well, no, that would have been amazing. Now we're dealing with a life-limiting condition. So we sort of went, it's just, yeah, these emotions are sort of everywhere. But but it was, in a way, it was liberating to know that, okay, we've got this time frame. Let's just make it awesome. Let's just give him whatever it would like. You know, a lot of parents lose their child and don't get a warning. Do you know what I mean? So in a way, we were going, okay, we've got, we've got this. We're going to be all right. So um, yeah, so things sort of carried on, and he um, we got seizure control, and then we didn't get seizure control, and so we were sort of on this roller coaster of this medication works for a bit, then he'd grow and. He was growth was very stu- was very stunted, so he was always in the. Um, you know, the the fifth percentile and things like that. So that would also affect his risk of other infections. And so there was a lot of ICU stays. So we were in and out of ICU. And um, 
Yeah, and so it was, but he's going to be okay between 6 and 16. So I'll worry about palliative care. I'll worry about that stuff. For me, it was I'll worry about when things get worse. So as if there's going to be a knock on the door and they're going to say, this is worse now. So, you know. <laughs> an alert, an alert, <laughs> no, that doesn't an happen. alert. <laughs> yeah. And it's strange, as an epilepsy parent, you get used to seizures and you get used to these things going on that are really dangerous and really awful, but it's just your normal. So being in ICU with seizures was, okay, he's got seizures, we're in good hands. Or being in ICU with an infection, this is what happens, you know. So you kind of just on this heightened, this is normal life for us. So you sort of lose that buffer of maybe having everything okay and then a really awful thing happening. You're used to just awful things. And so it wasn't until a really touch and go ICU stay with um, seizures and he'd gone into status. So anytime he was awake, he was seizing. So um, they were throwing medications in and each time they'd give him a new medication, it came with the warning of he might need to be intubated. This might affect his airways to the point of sedation where he might not breathe well and we're going to need to intubate. So each time we went, oh yeah, intubate, of course, that's that's fine. That's what we'll do. You know, it's seizures, the rest of his body while he's underweight and things, he's still okay. I was six and a half months pregnant with baby number two and we have two big rottweilers and cats and everything, everyone at home waiting to be fed. So my husband toddled off and went to go feed them. And I was um, next to Damien just doing all that normal stuff that you do with a child in ICU. And a doctor came in and he said, now mind you, this was after the fifth or sixth warning about intubation is our plan of what we're going to be doing and we'll just intubate everything, we'll be fine. And he says, oh, have Damien's orders changed? And I said, I beg your pardon? He says, oh, if we intubate now, he won't survive. And I went, what? My husband's not around. I'm six months pregnant. The nurse's face has turned white. So, and I'm going, I beg your pardon? Yeah, no, he won't survive now. He's, he's too tired. Now, it had been days that this had been going on. And so it just hit me the severity of what this was. And I had, there was no one. I remember thinking, isn't there meant to be a family meeting? Isn't there meant to be, um, you get all your nearest and dearest together. This has just gotten really bad. So I remember ringing Steve and saying, you need to come back. It was a big mess. What are we doing? And um, the social worker arrived and beautiful Dave from um, uh, the Anglican minister, um, the Anglican pastoral care. The pastoral care, he came and it was all scram. Everyone was scrambling because I was losing my mind. And um, yeah, and so after the dust had settled and things were still awful, amazing Abigail here had actually, we knew one another from Syndromes Without a Name group. And she'd recently said goodbye to beautiful Matthew. So there was, Abigail was sort of doing some, pastoral care of her own (laughs) and sort of visited for a coffee and sort of said what's going on and I told her what had happened and of course Abigail gets that knows how awful it is and it was Abigail who actually suggested maybe being linked to palliative care and it hit me I remember thinking like that's not yet you know what I mean that's between six and 16 you know he's only um, 18 months old and so, um, yeah, so that was it. So that's a really long intro to my palliative care journey, but it was sort of we got thrown into, yeah, so that was me going, okay, this is this is where we're at. So, yeah. Thank you for sharing that very emotional um, description because every one of these journeys is emotional. Many families recoil at the suggestion that their child be referred to paediatric palliative care Often parents have a preconception about a referral to palliative care signifying death as being imminent, and this can be very scary and confronting for all of you. Families approach a referral to palliative care in different ways. Some avoid it at all costs. Some embrace it with open arms. 
and there's a vast spectrum of responses in between. Some families feel like a referral signifies giving up uh, on their child or foregoing active treatment and care. Others find value in hearing how palliative care can make a difference and support their child and family. So in this episode, we aim to reflect on how families tackle the referral into paediatric palliative care, how they manage their fears and hesitations, and what they'd like to share with other families about the experience. So I guess, um, Renee, you're currently in the middle of it. What was that process going on from what you were saying? How did it unfold for you? And and we know you didn't like the idea, but how did it unfold for you? I parked it for a little bit. I went, we're in ICU now. The referral process is going to take a little while. Let me just park it and think about it because that's generally what I tend to do. <laughs> I park, I think, and then I'll act upon it. And so I actually opened up to Damien's occupational therapist who also knows Abigail. And we, um, yeah, sort of discussed it with her and sort of spoke about the pros and cons of that kind of thing and um, eventually discussed it with Damien's paediatrician who who did set up the referral. And so it was Abigail had explained that it's not so much it, – it's – it's the start of the journey, really. You know, as much as it's dealing, you're dealing with a team that are going to usher in you with the worst day of your life. It's also about that encompassing care that they would have created that buffer for that conversation with the doctor that day. That wouldn't ever have happened. He would have contacted the pal care team and then they would have delivered that or re-questioned that or parked that back with more senior doctors. And yeah, so then I sort of saw the benefit of that, that they were also going to coordinate care for Damien, that there was also, it was another team that would know Damien and would know what he needs and would um, create that buffer for us. So that was, um, I think that was the real selling point for us was that while we don't have a particular, we don't have, we don't have a set date, but the fact that it can, you know, things can deteriorate really quickly, that it would have been really good to have people around us at that time who do know us and what we need. So, yeah. Simon, your journey on palliative care was it something foreign to you when it was put to you, considering that you had both a wife and son um, in a terminal condition? Um, if I take myself back to that meeting, it was it was almost a fait accompli in that in that um, we knew Marmaduke was terminal, and so we were just in and out for doing checkups or we were in and out because his bloods were dropping or whatever was required. But we the focus was to try and keep him at home as long as we could. And at, the, at that time, it was actually, he was active. He was at home, but he was active and getting around. Um, but obviously, the trigger would have been um, the medication, um, his pain relief, and then it was deemed appropriate. We should have had, you know, the big meeting. But it was clear, because Milson was terminal, it, again, you've got the urban myth of, um, pal care being almost like the kiss of death and it was very, very close to home for Milson because she was terminal herself so she didn't really it was not like we're not going to do it it's just I, I you know, I want to park it I don't want to go there yet until I really have to and so I was more than happy just to take that on so I basically got briefed so the introduction was really to me this is what we are, this is what we can do but it was it was phrased in terms of the future you know. and I remember, you know, here's a big big file with all the different services and of course as a parent you're you're trying to take it in even though you're you you it's hard to visualize what that decline is going to look like 
And so you kind of want to ask the question, you're kind of frightened to ask the question, and then you kind of almost know the answer isn't there anyway. And so it was kind of an odd, it was something that had to be done for me. Um, I needed the briefing. And then essentially what happened is Palcare came on seamlessly anyway because um, they were advising, always advising in terms of pain relief, you know, what can we do in terms of oral meds? And so it was kind of a relatively seamless intro and still Milsom didn't really want to get thoroughly involved and because I was the full-time carer, it didn't really, wasn't a major issue. Um, until it got to the stage where he really was, he bang, he just declined. Um, and there was a, there was a, there was a horrendous time, but, but I remember it because we'd been in hospital and when you're a full-time carer, you're the, yeah, you're the one constant in amongst all the different changing doctors, consultants, nurses, you're the one constant. So you do become highly attuned to sometimes a gesture, a whisper, a murmur, and you know, right. And I could constantly see we were in with, he'd got an infection, um, but I just consciously kept putting his hand over his abdomen. It was, very, it was almost unconscious for him, and I kept pointing it out to people. And eventually... Um, no, we still can't find anything. And I, I remember we were going away for his birthday and so um, I was desperate to get out of the hospital. But I was so adamant, you've missed something, I fasted him that night so that we could go in and get an ultrasound in the morning. And they came up in the morning and to say, oh, actually, no, he's he's grown a culture overnight, so, yeah, he's got a UTI, you know, which is a classic... And so we were just loaded up with a whole bunch of antibiotics and left and went on this holiday trip. And it was, I won't get, it was just a, a nightmare. Absolutely. It was the worst it's ever been where, unfortunately, Milsom crashed. She was down with, she was just horrendous and in pain and exhausted. Marmaduke could barely murmur. He was just in pain and exhausted. I also went, I also went down with, I look back, was I processing a bit of grief? But I went down what what the nurses thought was whooping cough, but it was pretty horrendous. And so we were stuck, you know, out about three, four hours out of Melbourne. And um, I remember ringing the hospital going, well, hang on, two, three days, this hasn't, shouldn't it have cleared by now? And they said, oh, yeah, you've, you've got to get him back in. And the poor kid was just, he was just, just quiet and whimpering occasionally, and he was in pain, and I had additional uh, pain relief, but it just wasn't touching the sides. And so I remember getting him back into hospital. It was a horrendous journey coming back. We, we finally made it through the night, got him into hospital, and that's when Palcare were able to go, right. They made a quick assessment and suddenly started, you know, putting opioids directly into the muscle and stabilised him, and within... A half an hour, an hour, the life was coming back to his face. And so that's the key in that, that that's one level, which is the comfort and the pain relief, which is highly skilled. And it's it's a little bit, it's a slippery fish. You keep, you can't, you think you've got it and then it slips again. And so you've just got to keep adjusting what, what his body's doing, how he's responding to the pain. So that was critical, but it's, but Palcare enables you. It enables him to live his life. And so that was the moment, the worst time for me was those three, horrendous three days out of Melbourne where I couldn't, um, 
I could see the pain he was in and I knew I couldn't actually fix it. And it's like a hook in your chest. That's the worst thing. And so I always remember that when I think of pal care because actually they fix that. They, they actually do remove that immediately, which then just raises your child. It just brings your child back up to the surface and then they can interact. And that's all they want to do. He woke up every day. He didn't wake up as a cancer patient. He woke up as a three-year-old, a four-year-old. He wanted fun. He wanted mischief. He wanted to play tricks. He wanted to shout. And he wanted to play. And so Palcare essentially allowed him to do that for those last five months, which also means he got to share his life and we got to share it with him. His brothers could climb on the bed with him. His sister could lie with him. So we we interacted and that's what it enabled. And so it's not just the pain relief is almost, it's highly skilled, but it's almost step one. All the other intangibles are the psychological well-being, the emotional well-being, not just of my son, but all the whole family. And I can see that Palcare helped not just during the journey, but actually because of the experience we had, that actually helped the whole family and it's the recovery from trauma afterwards because we had such a beautiful... Experience. Yeah. Okay, so Abigail, how did your pal care journey start? Um, so after that initial... Um, conversation with that ICU doctor who was like, before you come back and when and not if, I want you to have a set of clear instructions. Um, go back to your paediatrician and like have that conversation. My husband was like, I just don't ever want to feel like we gave up on him. So having an order for no ventilation or whatever it was, like to him it was not giving Maddie like all of the tools to see what he could do with them. But as the carer, as the person who was there all of the time watching all of those gestures and all of those things, um, as Simon said, I didn't feel the same. But we went in, did ED again between those two times and that was the time that Maddie had to be bagged all the way in into hospital because he just wasn't breathing on his own. Um, and that was a change for my husband who was like, okay, I can see that this is, it's different. It's not, Seriously. you know, it's, you know. So when we went to the meeting, Nigel was really gentle and just like, here's our advanced care form that we have in the hospital and these are the questions we ask and this is what these things mean. And um, obviously it was a really big deal, but... Um, I don't know. I guess we were content with our decision. Like we knew we'd just talked it out. We'd seen what it was like for Maddie um, and we knew we didn't want to put him through anything unnecessarily um, that would just drag things out for our so we can have him longer rather than him have his life longer. And then Palcare came, the first time we met them, they actually came to our house. Then one of the first questions I asked, which... Bronwyn always vividly remembers, was, well, how does a family pay for a funeral? <laughs> not, not an unknown question, but... Uh... She was like, we don't have to talk about that. We don't have to talk about funerals. We don't have to talk about dying. We don't have to talk about that stuff. We're here to get to know you guys. We're here to get to know Matthew. And we will 
be there when you come in and out so we know what's going on. We know what you you and your family are about. We will be people that you know and are comfortable with who are coming alongside to reassure you when things get really bad, but we will be there along the way so that won't be weird. And I think it was exactly that. And it changed the conversation for you from then on? Yeah, because it was like, how do we get the best quality out of life? So Maddie turned five 11 days before he passed away. And the Starlight Foundation had contacted us and said, he's come up on our list for his wish. What would you guys like? We didn't do the Disney trip, but we they they hosted his birthday party, his fifth birthday party for us. And one of the things, palliative care, it was their job. He was an inpatient. He was quite sick. He was on a lot of drugs. Um, and it was them whose kind of call it is to say, you know what? Don't put the birthday party off because, of course, everybody's quite happy to move heaven and earth um, to make that work. Go do the birthday party. We will do what we have to do to make sure he's comfortable and safe. We'll send a nurse. You can have a few hours off to go do that. This is really important. And pal care, I guess they're part of the picture in making you feel comfortable to make those decisions also kind of giving you the confidence to think about things like life instead of focusing on what's coming, on on the passing away, on the death or whatever else. So we got referred to palliative care at 12 months old or just shy of 12 months old, but he passed away at five. So we were in palliative care for four years, but every step of the way they were there. And for me, sometimes when there was that gesture, that pain reflex, that whatever that I saw that no one else did, palliative care, they knew him. They'd been there the whole time. They weren't new. I would go, this, this and this, that's not right. I don't, I'm not happy with this. And they would, they knew me enough and they knew him enough to take that really seriously. So sometimes they were the team to actually take some action. Yeah, so you have your introduction. And then it's the journey onwards. Yeah. 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 Um, Renee, where are you in Pell Care? What's, what's the day-to-day for you like now? Um, so we were we had our first appointment via telehealth due to the COVID lockdown. So yeah, that was lovely. Yeah. Let's have the most serious conversation in the world via video. And I don't do video very well, so it was awful. That said, though, there was the benefit of me having easy access to a bottle of wine once we'd finished and not having to, <laughs> not having to navigate the car park or hospital with cry eyes. So that was um, just hanging up the phone. But um, it was... You just go into that appointment with just so much in your head. You're just going, what What are we going to discuss that, you know, is, is it going to come down to advanced care orders? Are we going to discuss what happens when, you know, when he passes away? Where do we even start? And it was awful as it is. It was really beautiful in the fact that they, they just reiterated that this can all change. Whatever we discuss today, whatever your plans are, they're not in stone. They're not in concrete because that's what I was really worried about. Because at the mo- at the time of that call, Damien was okay. As far as a normal child's concerned, he's not okay. But for Damien, he's doing really well. So it was more us going, okay, at the moment, we're prepared to throw everything we've got in the toolkit to help him. 
but that could potentially shift and I wouldn't like to be throwing everything at something that's just once the horse bolts that's we'll, we'll worry about that then but I didn't want them to be going okay these parents want to do everything but potentially have this child suffer unnecessarily or just for our own we just want him here you know and if it's if it's not if there is no quality of life in in that well then I want to be able to reassess and they were really beautiful about that they sort of said you know this is this isn't about, you know, it's not so much end-of-life care, it's quality-of-life care. The irony isn't lost on me that we're talking to an end-of-life team to get that quality of life for him here and now. So that was that was really good. They also looked at, because he's sort of under so many other teams, they also kind of looked at how can we get all of this, you know, neuro do this and stomach do this and eyes do this. And there was so many other sort of things going on that they sort of said, okay, what's Damien doing? How can we help Damien day to day? These things that he might have going on aren't necessarily neurological now. So how can developmental medicine help? What else, you know, how can we help with that? And so that was really good in knowing that there is just more to all of that. And they're really good at just a phone call to check in. If they don't hear from us for a little bit, if we're not in hospital, how's everything going? What's this? You know, and I'm really good. Steve and I are really good at, we just pick up and go on. You know, we don't complain to anyone. We don't, you know, there's, it doesn't change anything. So it's not until someone says, and how are you going? (laughs) You go, actually, pretty awful. But the fact that someone's asking, do you know what I mean? Because you do do a lot of, you sort of just back to the keeper with a lot of people who try to ask how you're going. But you're talking to people who know their stuff. They know who and what you are. They know that this is huge and they're, they're there to, to, to have a cry to or to have a laugh with and to they have an amazing sense of humour. We're under um, Jenny and Ingrid, so, of course, that's, they're, you know, you can, you, they're, they're there for me to go, okay, this is awful. And at the same time, I do have a terrible, a terribly inappropriate sense of humour sometimes and they're okay with that too. So it is, yeah, just another team that know us and know what we want and that was really important that things can change and might change and that they're there to help facilitate that and help us help guide us when we can't make that decision that they'll be there to help say okay this this is this might help this might not help or they'll, they'll be those people for us so we well, I'm really grateful to have that and have yeah that outside looking in perspective so Simon, how did Palcare help you with your children? And and is there an involvement? Is there a sense that um, palliative care is not just for parents and the child? That there, you know, how the children of other children are, are, are doing in the, in the process? Yeah, well, no, it's all part of the conversation because in terms of what you need, um, although the focus is very much on, although the focus is on Marmaduke, we wanted him home so he could experience life to the fullest whatever that meant and that varied not so much day to day but probably week to week as his condition sort of slightly declined but um as that meant okay how can how can he be free to do things with his brothers how can he be free to go out to the park with his sister and so those conversations became part of we could maybe try this furniture or we could try this chair or we could maybe do this or um what equipment's going to give him a little bit more mobility? And so what do you need for the car? I mean, it was it was subtly there the whole time. And it was, it was when they came to the house, um, of course, their focus was Marmaduke, but there would also be, okay, what's happening with the kids? Um, you connect them because... And that was a policy decision we took as well in that at home. We, we wanted no fear in the house. 
We didn't want any fear around the bedside. We didn't want um, one because it would just that's just not the way we wanted to live. But also that would communicate itself to Marmaduke. Um, and so the pal care team were were great. They just accepted all of that, and they would they obviously helped contribute to it. Um, and I guess when it got to the stage of um, I mean, obviously, because Milson was terminal as well, um, she was trying to be active. She was trying to sort of hold, you know, trying to hold down a job and trying to hold down the kids and trying to do her own treatment, thinking she got longer to go. But then when that crashed, um, she got raced into hospital. So then I'm I'm thinking, right, OK, I need to go in and see Milson. Um, Marmaduke was still on 24-7 care, so he's at home with me. Um, we were getting daily visits because I could, I was, you know, as a carer, you try and do everything. There are certain things you can't do. You know, if you're changing a drug line, that has to be a nurse that comes in and does that. And so because we're at home, we had a local service coming in to do that. And I'd be on the bat phone to pal care, you know, Royal Children's. And that would be a day to day negotiation. Okay, this happened last night. We're a bit low on this. What about this? I'm thinking this. Now, then when Milsom crashed, it was like, okay, I needed to, um, in the morning, basically get the boys up, get them ready, get Marmaduke in the car out of his bed, um, into his child seat, um, get my youngest into his child seat, get the other other son off to school, then go and drop the youngest at childcare, and then I'd be... And sometimes I'd take them both in and I'd be trying to wheel, get Rafty into a wheelchair and push his younger brother up into the hospital. At the, at the same time, I'd be, ringing, I'd be on the bat phone to Pal Care going, OK, I'm going to go into the hospital for 9.30. I'm low on this drug. Um, we're going to need to cancel the local service coming in. Um, I'm low on drugs. So then they would go, right, OK. And they met me at Milsom's Hospital and, they, and then we'd... So we'd be, have this three-way conversation because for them it was very much – it wasn't what was – it was like, what does Marmaduke need? I said, right, he needs – we've got to deliver this drug into him, but he's not going to be at home. We're going to be somewhere in the city. And so we just juggled it, and it was very ad hoc. But it worked, absolutely worked. Um, and I never really questioned it. And I think the one thing – when I think of Palcare, we had – we were we were able to have the most extraordinary time with Marmaduke, but the rider I have to put on that, and of course it's hindsight, is when you look back. I have to remember, even though I was full time carer, I was at the end of what three and a half year journey, um, and then Milsom died within nine days once we had her admitted, and so to be fair, I was probably just running on adrenaline. Mm -hmm. So although I was doing everything. That that was enabled by the pal care team, you know, in terms of the I mean, you can't do it on your own. You're doing an awful lot, but you have to remember, yeah, it's the professionals coming in or just being that the calming voice on the phone. Um, yep, we're going to do this. We'll get this to you by such and such a time. So it is it is a team effort. Yeah. Does this resonate with you? There we go. Um, obviously, you were able to help Renee. What were the things that you say, you can say about encouraging people to take on palliative care? They're the team that knows you and is more focused on, like, I guess the emotional and psychological stuff and the real-life stuff and not so much the medical stuff. 
So they help you. They can help you make decisions about life um, without being completely focused on the medical stuff. So um, it's not about okay, we're giving up now. That's it. There are no more options. It's about getting to know know your family and your child so that we can give you the best suggestions and help so that you can have the best of this time, however long that might be. Um, and if you don't want to talk about death, you never have to. Like, you know, like not never, never, but it doesn't have to be something that comes up. Did you ask that question again? How do I plan a funeral? How do I pay for a funeral? How do I pay for a funeral? <laughs> um, well, we got all the way to the end, six days before he passed away, when Bronwyn said, you guys asked us to tell you when it was time to stop doing things. I don't think you need me to tell you this, but you asked me to tell you this. Over all those years, you asked me, Luke specifically said, just please don't let us be doing things to him or for him that he... It's not time for. So she said, just to be clear, this is that moment. And, um, yeah, during that week, my husband called a funeral director and had them come here to the hospital and he met with them. But I didn't meet with the funeral director. So I was the one who asked four years ago, how do I pay for a funeral? How do I do all these things? Because I'm quite intellectual I like my lists and planning and whatever else but in that end stage in those last six days I didn't have the capacity for it if you had asked me any other time in that four years to have that meeting with the funeral director I would have done it in a heartbeat but that week I didn't have the capacity to so my husband did that download had that brief so when Maddie was gone he just picked up the phone and said you know Maddie's gone, can you do X, Y, Z? Um, and that was very helpful for me at the time because I had been the carer and the planner and the coordinator all of the rest of the time. So at that point I was done. <laughs> but, yeah, palliative care and all of those things made that so much easier. How did your extended family um, deal with the idea of palliative care for your child? My close family... Because neither Milton or I had family over here, but I was often, my bat phone was to, you know, Europe, where my family were. Um, they were incredibly understanding. They were, you know, we'd be researching things on the web together. And um, I think actually it was more challenging with friends and community in Australia where there's a, the number of times I would hear, but he's going to be okay, isn't he? Mm-hmm. And you and I'm sure that I'm yeah I can hear everyone nodding in agreement so it's that challenge where you end up trying to placate and calm and support people around you and it becomes exhausting Mm -hmm. it really does become quite exhausting and so eventually you reach a point where um, I can't keep doing that Mm -hmm. or you realize that they don't really want to hear they don't want. They don't want to hear the nitty gritty. They actually know his terminal, um, and so they're a bigger fish to fry. You actually need to support your family. You need to support your child, and so that's what you focus your energy on. Yeah. So you just breeze over it and don't give the details, so they get whatever impression they wanted to get from the conversation. So you don't have to explain yourself. So you can protect your own energy. Um, Did they understand palliative care as being something else, though? Um, oh, 
Definitely. I'd say I probably didn't mention it, really. Um, we had so many teams and so many doctors. I think I probably just referred to that as, you know, the nurse, the doctor, the whatever. And only a really close family knew about the palliative care thing. But that had been four years prior. So I guess a lot of things happened between those two the end-of-life care and the palliative care thing. Renee, how did your uh, wider family react to the concept of paediatric palliative care? The moment you mention palliative care, people just shut up. They just go, oh, oh, it's that serious. With epilepsy, there's a lot of, oh, but it's only epilepsy. People have medication and they're okay or they grow out of it. Or, Yeah, and I wish that was the case for every epilepsy. By God, we wouldn't have, you know, any of the issues, you know, this whole community have. But um, I think it also demonstrates just the seriousness of it. I know um, my mum right away went, oh, but he's going to be okay, you know, so... It opened that conversation to, yeah, this is what it's on the cards, but it it is down the track, but we are we do need to be under this team. But at the same time that this is the seriousness of Damien's condition. There's no it's really difficult. You go, Oh, my child's got epilepsy, he's got multiple disabilities. Oh, and it's life limiting. You leave that bit out. And so I feel like that sort of yeah, I think that sort of just takes away that the awkwardness is still there, but at the same time, you just park it and say, this is how it is. I don't need to get into it anymore. There's no, you can Google it. This is, you know, and I think that there's a, there's a bit of protection there as well. But And it's also liberating where you go, yeah, this is how serious it is. And, I'm, you know, you don't want to keep pandering to people that everything's going to be okay because it's not. It's all a bit ordinary, you know, so, yeah. And it's also, it isn't always finite because you don't know, for example, what the end is going to look like or when it is. Yeah. Are you talking months or weeks or years? Yeah, you yeah. don't always know. Correct. And that also makes it very difficult when you're communicating with someone because if it's more finite, then it's a bit easier. Any advice for parents who are starting this journey as you are? No, don't be afraid of the word. I think the word palliative care is really, it just has, it just brings up just awfulness. Adult palliative care is so different. This isn't, this isn't the end. This is the beginning. Once you're with palliative care and your child, there's that recognition that your child's at the point where you need that level of help. Your, your child needs that level of help. You need that help too. Like this isn't just about help. This is most importantly helping our children, but you forget about the carer and you forget about the parents. And, and there's a circle of people around you as well who are doing their best to hold you up. And it's it's impossible for them. Whereas palliative care, they're the guys. They're the ones that are trained. They know what to say. They know what to do. They know how to look. Every family is so different. What we're bringing to this is so different. Our belief systems, our history, how we're dealing with the the potential loss of our child. It's huge, you know, so you need a really huge team to just step in and scoop you up. And it's it's awful. If you need to park it, park it. If you've had that discussion somewhere along the line or you've read something on Google that makes you think that you might be that parent that might be looking at that eventually, just have a chat, have a conversation. If anything, it just takes away this spectre. I had death hanging over my head every every suction, every infection, every time you're giving anti-epileptic medications. <laughs> Excuse me, it's there. It's, whereas now it's like, yeah, it's there. It's going to happen. Eventually this is on the cards for us, but there's all these other cards that I'm going to play as hard as I can, you know, so I'm... Um, 
Pal Garrett. Yeah, they're there going, you're, you're going to be okay. You've got this, you know. So um, I just really hope any other parent feels that way. Even just it's just an inkling, just do it because it will only lighten that burden. And the burden's big. So we, we need that extra help as parents and carers to, to carry that load. So just do it. It's incredibly, I mean, I'm sitting here as a bereaved parent. So it's it's incredibly natural to feel fear and to not want to look at the end of a life. But everything that we celebrated with Marmaduke was about his life. So it was the journey. And that's what palliative care allowed us to do. It allowed him to live an incredibly active, fun, happy life right to the end um, even as his um, energy declined and his movement got a bit more constricted um, his needs his daily needs might have been different he may not have had the energy to he wasn't running around the house with his brothers but he was sitting in bed with them and there was not a moment um, when he did not have a hand stroking, holding, embracing him. So he was completely in a cocoon of love, which was enabled through pal care. And I think <clears throat> that was an incredibly beautiful thing to be able to provide for him. But it's also something extremely beautiful for us all, of all the whole family to um, engage and experience that as well. And I think that's the other thing I would say. <clears throat> anybody listening to this, don't be frightened about location or environment. Um, whether palliative care happens in the hospital ward or in a hospice or you have the ability for it to happen at home, just feel empowered and you do have the ability to do it. Okay, thank you for your brave and honest discussion with us today. You've been listening to the Royal Children's Hospital podcast series, Life, Love and Loss, Caring for a Child Who is Dying. The Royal Children's Hospital Victorian Paediatric Palliative Care Program and all its health professionals would like to thank those parents who've generously taken part in this series. You can search all the episodes online at rch.org.au forward slash podcasts. I'm Lena Keneva. Thanks for listening.